Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, I'm Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. On The Mallard Report, along with my guest, we will have a conversation where we will share thoughts and opinions. For more information, my bio, past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D dot com. And thanks for listening. must apologize the alarm that i set for 9 a.m just went off now which makes okay. it 9, 9 p.m which is great <laughs> one of those days okay anyways my uh, go over to verities apparel slash mallard save 10 percent for u.s shipping 10 uh, percent off made in america good t-shirts i'm wearing one now believe in i'm wearing the one that has bigfoot and says believe in something bigger than yourself so anyways verities apparel slash mallard save 10 percent I think I got all that figured out squarely. Um, my guest tonight is Fred Whitlin, the author of I Was an American Teenager, JFK Conspiracy Freak. But first, before we get into the book, Fred, how are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm pretty good. How are you? Pretty good. So, I think I heard you were six or seven when the, the assassination happened? Yeah, I was seven. Seven years old and living in Montreal, Canada. And... Did you? I mean, obviously, the world changed. I mean, I can't. I just tell me about how things were like that day and the, the days following. Well, you know, I don't remember that much. Being seven, I remember just. I think we were let out of school early and walking home and feeling very sad. But I really didn't know very much about what had happened or what, or what was going on. I was just a bit, a bit too 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 young for it all. But you knew something was up. I knew something was up. I knew the president had been killed. But I, you know, that's you know. That's about all I really knew. So fast forward, uh, you said teenage, so fast forward 10 years or so? Uh, well, no, fast forward to 1975. March 1975, when I was watching Good Night America, the Geraldo Rivera show, and he played the Zapruder film for the first time. And that's what got me into uh, researching the JFK assassination. So it took eight years to get that film out? Yeah, well, Life Magazine owned it, and uh, they did not. They, they part of the agreement with the Zapruder family. Zapruder family was not to exploit the horrific nature of the film, and so they decided not to show it publicly. Just seems. I mean, I mean I'm a kid of the '90s and now, and yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we all we all sat around the other day watching the cathedral burn, and now we're talking about. Just, just amazing the how technology has changed everything. Oh yeah, it's a different, uh, different era in many ways. So okay, so take me back to the first time you seen that film. What what caught your attention about it? Well, I, there I was. I was eighteen years old. I'm watching this film on TV, and it really seemed uh, uh, frame three thirteen. Kennedy's head goes back and to the left. It seemed to me uh, like a shot came from the front. Um, but what I was really interested in was I wanted to know, okay, if it's so obvious that he was shot from the front, why did the Warren Commission say differently? And that's what really got into it. Wow, I had to find that out. What was the reason? There must be a counter-explanation. And so I went off to the library, and uh, you know, the first book I read was Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. There were very few books on the shelves in our library, uh, but, I, but I did read Mark Lane's Rush to Judgment. Tell me a little bit more about that, because I, I have not picked that one up yet. Well, Mark Lane was a ambulance chaser, and he had decided after the assassination to go down to Dallas, and perhaps this would be a meal ticket for him. He was completely correct. It was a meal ticket. 
Um, he stirred up the pot of conspiracy, ultimately writing Rush to Judgment in 1966. It's a horrible book, full of omissions and errors and, and misstatements and uh, a really dreadful book. But it sold over a million copies and made him a lot of money. Do you believe that's a lot where the the origin point of a lot of these conspiracies was or is? A lot, a lot of well, he was one of the he was the early one who was really out there uh, pushing conspiracy. There were a number of other people. Obviously, a whole host of books came out in the in 1965 and 66, mostly in 66. He, he his was the chief, the big one. The, book, the one that really sold. And he, he toured all over the states and every college campus you could think of. So he was really out there. So, so after after you read that, and where did where, where, where did you, I mean, because obviously I'm sitting here thinking, you went to the library to get this. See, again, here's the Yeah, I went to the, the library, and, and, and what was interesting in the book, it was written in 1966, and in the book he talked about the JFK autopsy x-rays and photos. And in his book, he said they had been confiscated by federal police agents. So I wanted to know more. And so I went to the periodical index and the New York Times in a yearly index to see, because his book was written in 66, it's now 1975, so I had nine years to catch up. And I found out that in 1972, two doctors were allowed to examine the JFK autopsy x-rays and photographs. And I got their names. I went to a, a directory of physicians in the U.S., got their addresses. I wrote them both letters. That was Dr. John Latimer and Dr. Cyril Wecht. And about 10 days later, I got a big, thick package from both doctors with all of their articles. And that cleared up a lot of stuff about the headshot because the autopsy x-rays and photos are clear that Kennedy was shot from behind, not from the front. They, bo- they both agreed on that. Just they both clear. agreed, and it was clear that it was a neuromuscular spasm that had caused Kennedy's head to go back. So that was one mystery solved. So what? What, what other? So at, at that point, you you're all on board with is that the c- cleaning up your conspiracy thoughts, or is that? Uh, no, more? I was really I was, I was very intrigued with Dr. Cyril Wecht and the fact that he was a very big critic of the single bullet theory, the theory that one bullet went through JFK and Governor John Connolly, causing seven wounds and uh, coming out relatively unscathed. I thought that didn't make much sense, and so I thought there was something there, and uh, basically uh, school interrupted in 1980. I. When, 1978, I went off to MBA school in Queen's University at Kingston, and I put all my JFK stuff aside. And uh, and that was right at the era of when uh, the House Select Committee on Assassinations had, had finished their second investigation and had issued their report um, saying that there was probably a conspiracy. Probably. probably. That's an interesting word. Yep. I mean, they couldn't find it. Um, but I wanted to know more because I, the, their conclusions mirrored the, the Warren Commission. Uh, the House Select Committee on Assassination said that Oswald fired three shots. Two of his shots hit Kennedy. One killed Kennedy. The same, and, and they even supported the single bullet theory. So I thought all that was very interesting. They did say, believe that there was one shot fired from the front that missed and that was because of the acoustics evidence. Of course, we all know that that was overturned um, by the National Academy of Sciences a few years later. What an interesting... Because of all the resources the government has, you'd think they'd be able to produce a product that's definitive one way or the other. Not just, eh, maybe, possibly, could have... Well, it was they were they were about to issue a very definitive report, and then at the last minute, the Dictabelt evidence came up, and they hired uh, Bold Bernick and Newman and, and Ashkenazi uh, Weiss and Ashkenazi to to examine them, and they both came back and said that the the acoustics evidence pointed to a second gunman, and that forced the House Select Committee to change their conclusions at the last minute. Of course, uh, both of those firms were in error about the acoustics evidence. The, uh, the, uh, the acoustics evidence did not capture the assassination. 
take me uh, take me back. Cause I'm unfamiliar. With, let's based off the recordings that were available and these were no. These were the the, the theory was that the the motorcycles, the police logs, were captured on something called a dicta belt. It's a magnetic sort of tape recorder with a belt that records all police transmissions. The theory was that perhaps one of the motorcycles in the motorcade, maybe its its um, microphone had jammed. And if it had jammed and stayed open during the assassination, the dicta belt might have recorded the shots. And so at the last minute, the House Select Committee on Assassination sent the dicta belt to both Berenick and Newman, and they examined it, and they felt that they had found uh, at least four shots, one of which came from the grassy knoll, and that put the committee in a bind, because they were ready to conclude that there was no conspiracy. And so they went to Jim Barger, the lead scientist, they said, are you ready to testify nationwide that there was a second gunman? And he started to hedge his bets, and he eventually testified that there was a 50% chance of a, grass, of a shot from the knoll. Then they went to a second firm, Weiss and Ashkenazi, two guys in Queens, uh, from Queens in New York, and they did some more tests, and they came back and said there was a 95% chance of a shot from the front. So that forced the select committee to change all their conclusions. Of course, two years later, the National Academy of Sciences re-looked at the acoustic evidence and conclusively determined that, in fact, it did not capture the shots at all. And so there goes the evidence of a conspiracy. Again. Another part that... I, 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 I've never understood the grassy knoll, but that's just... Yep. Is that, is that the, okay, you, you, um, you, have been doing, you've, you did your first presentation on JFK in, what, 1994? And you've been researching yes, it for... Well, I've been researching in 75, but I gave a presentation in, in Liverpool, England, on the JFK assassination. That was my first, first public uh, presentation. So, okay, so you, you've been after this for a while. So what is the one, I mean, I know most of the conspiracy things just drive you absolutely I'll say it, batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> but what's the one that all just instantly breaks you and makes you just want to boil over? Well, the worst one is is the whole Clay Shaw affair. Uh, Clay Shaw was this gay businessman in 1967 who was charged with conspiring to kill Kennedy by New Orleans prosecutor Jim Garrison. It was a complete sham of a case. It took two years to go to trial. Uh, Shaw was acquitted. Then he was charged with perjury, which took another couple of years, bankrupted him, and then he died of cancer. Very sad story. And then Jim, uh, then Oliver Stone decided to make his movie, and he made Clay Shaw the villain in his movie, and he made Jim Garrison the hero, completely reversing their true roles. That drives me crazy. Wait. How is... If... if... <laughs> If Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, how was there a conspirator? Well, Jim Garrison was this prosecutor. Lee Harvey Oswald lived in New Orleans in the summer of 1963. And so there were, in back when the Warren Commission was investigating, there were a few leads. I mean, before the Warren Commission, there were a few leads in New Orleans that Jim Garrison investigated in December of 1963. Uh, it didn't lead to anything. But back when the controversy of the Warren Report started in 66, he decided he would go back to those old leads and see if maybe they would lead somewhere. And ultimately, through some very bad reasoning, he started to believe that this gay businessman, Clay Shaw, um, was a conspirator in the assassination. It's an incredible story. It's all in my book. And I also tell the story of Oliver Stone's JFK. It's an incredible scandal. So let's do this since we're right here, since you just mentioned the book. Give give people the clean promo where they could find the book and your website and all that stuff before we get on. Uh, my website is conspiracyfreak.com, and you could find my book on Amazon, on iTunes, on Kobo, Kindle, um, anywhere you can buy a book online, you will find my book. I was a teenage JFK conspiracy freak. And, uh, okay, so... Was it so the act of um, 
Jack Ruby was totally coincidental then. Yes, Jack Ruby is a very interesting story, and a lot of people don't really know um, the true story. Jack Ruby, on the day of the assassination that morning, there was an ad, a full-page ad in the Dallas Morning News, accusing Kennedy of all sorts of crimes. It was a, a right-wing it was a right-wing group that had put, taken a full-page ad out. At the bottom of the ad, it was signed Bernard Weissman. Jack Ruby saw that ad on Friday morning before the assassination, and he was quite upset because Bernard Weissman is a Jewish name. And he was wondering, you know, what, what's, what's going on with this ad? After the assassination, he was wondering, were Jews behind the assassination? Was this guy Weissman involved? On the ad was a post office box, and Jack Ruby actually went to the post office box to see if he could find out who this guy Weissman was. Of course, they wouldn't tell him, um, but he did see there was a lot of mail in the post office box. Um, but it enraged him. It enraged him that maybe Jews, he was Jewish, he was enraged that Jews might be involved in the assassination. It, made, it sort of made him a bit go crazy. And on Sunday, um, he killed Oswald. The whole thing completely backfired on Ruby because the John Birch Society, which is a far-right-wing organization, started accusing him of being involved in the conspiracy. They would only call him by his real name, Jacob Rubenstein, because they liked to go after Jews. And so Jack Ruby went really mental, and he started to believe that there was going to be a second Holocaust, and that people would blame him, representative of the Jews for killing Kennedy. It's 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 an incredible story. <laughs> it is. I mean, I guess, you know, you hear some of these things and you file them away and then you you bring them back up and you go, oh yeah, I did know that, but it's just... What's interesting, you know, for a while after when Jack Ruby first was in jail right after killing Oswald, he got a lot of cards and letters from people congratulating him on what he had done. He thought he was going to get out in a few years of jail and be a little bit of a celebrity. And uh, he was completely mistaken. I can't, ima I, I can't imagine that thought process, but I can't imagine most of these thought processes, so here we are. Um, do you have any, I mean, the autopsy photos and that stuff going with the Kennedy family, do you have any qualms with that, or is that, is that okay if you... It's, it's, everybody should go and read the authentication reports uh, of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. They took the photos and the x-rays and they gave them to uh, forensic uh, dentists, they gave them to anthropologists, they gave them to photo experts. They did every possible scientific test on the autopsy x-rays and photos to see if they were legitimate, and they were. Um, they passed every single test. We know that the man in the picture, in those autopsy pictures, was JFK. We know, there's no mystery. It's all really, you know, everybody should go read the authentication reports. They're quite conclusive. So I have no qualms about them. Well, uh, that's, that's the key, though. I mean, that, that seems to be a spark of conspiracy, too, because they rushed him out of Dallas to get the autopsy done, and, you know, that's another point of the conspiracy world that of course, uh, you, you do know you do know that the the the, uh, the coroner of Dallas, Dr. Earl Rose, was on the forensic pathology panel of the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Yeah, I do remember. See, and he concurred mind, get, with this. Mind's going to get going here in a few seconds. I promise. Yeah, so he concurred <laughs> with. So um, at least he got his crack at looking at all the autopsy materials uh, later on. Look, the law, the law was that the autopsy should have been done in Dallas, but I can understand why the Secret Service would want to get the body out of uh, Texas and to Washington. Sort of, sort of makes a little bit of sense to me. Yeah, I mean, in around, I mean, you can go both ways with that, though. But I understand it. But I can, there's a case to be made for letting them do what their needs done. But so. You mentioned some. I'm going to shift gears out of this for a few minutes while I sure. circle around him. Okay. You are an interesting guy beyond JFK. Yeah, I think is, so. Is that a fair <laughs> statement? I uh, think so. Besides writing the book, you you've dabbled. In, I don't want to say dabbled. It sounds like dark magic. 
that's not appropriate. Um, you're knowledgeable. You've performed the things with music and films and tech. Yep. I, I, own a, I own a company called Northern Blues Music, which is a blues music label. Started that in uh, late 2000. We've come out with around 70 CDs of various American and Canadian artists. And so that's been a, a real joy in my life the last uh, 19 years, although the music industry right now is not doing very well. I started the Free Thinking Film Society in Ottawa, which is a not-for-profit film society that shows documentaries on liberty, freedom, and democracy. So we've shown over 100 films in Ottawa. We did four film festivals. And I've written two books. So we're going to go back through this because that was way too much information way too fast. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> yeah, you, met, you, met, you mentioned the music industry being in the crapper. Yeah. I don't think you said crapper, yeah. but I will. Um, yeah, yeah. Is there any changing that? I mean, or are we just kind of stuck in this mess? No, nothing is going to change. I think we're in a very... It's, it's actually quite funny because the cost of making professional music has come way down. I mean, you could... Individuals could make really terrific-sounding uh, music right now at a very, very low price in their own homes. So the price of making music has come way down. Um, but the industry's gone away because the Spotify now... I mean, music is becoming more and more free or less and less expensive, and so the money is being taken out of the industry. It's being sucked out of the industry, and that's not going to come back. So ironically, it's cheaper now than ever to make music, so there's more music than ever before. Um, there's just not an industry that really surrounds it. So now for the tough question, the hardest question of the night probably, is music better now than it was when you were a kid? Well, you know, my taste, I mean, I look, I'm a roots guy. I like country, I like... I like um, early rock, I like blues, I like jazz. I think music is, is better in the sense that there's more talented musicians now than ever before. I mean, people who can really play amazing stuff, so now, you know, people just get better. So I think in that sense, the music um, is better. The quality of the recordings is better than, than it was back then. I mean, I remember how awful it was to buy albums and have them scratch and tick and pop and hiss and I used to hate it so it's a much better experience now for music than, than ever before um, so I think things are gotten better in that sense but she's it's just it's, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm thinking of the last time I walked around the store and there's vinyl on the shelf yep. before buying it well they're, they're not buying that much vinyl no but I if mean look at, even to have it come be remade just seems stupid to me it's it's you know you know look very few <laughs> stores can sell can even sell vinyl because of the shelf the way it has to be shelved. Um, so if you look at the numbers, it's a very it's it's growing, but it's a very small number of units. Uh, vinyl will never go will never become huge again. Um, so it's sort of a little bit of a curiosity right now, but um, it's not going to really go anywhere. The, the Spotify is what's really affecting music right now, and the fact that. Artists and record labels just aren't getting paid uh, by having their music on Spotify. Is well, how's that legal though? Shouldn't they have to? Pay well, they're his... paying. They're they're paying a very small rate. So, what you're you know everybody's going to sign up because that's the game in town, or it's the you know and on a, as well as Apple Music, uh, but you're getting very very little money, and so the money is being sucked out as more and more people go to these monthly service plans. And if if Apple ever closes iTunes, um, that'll be the real death of all the record labels. So how do, how how so it's live shows now is how musicians are going to make their their living. Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be live shows, and of course, uh, you know, it's not an easy life to play live. I mean, look for the top artists; they can do okay, but for middle tier, lower tier artists, it's a very very tough life because uh, you know going on the road is hard. I mean, I look at the way blues bands, if you look at blues bands, you know, they go across the country. I mean, they play in sort of like, you know, little bars. They play for either cover or the, uh, low cover or basically just the, just the door. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a tough life traveling in a van going from uh, city to city to play blues. Especially since all those people already have the music on their phone. 
or have access to it. Yeah, and they're, you, know, you know they're not going to buy your CD, um, or very few will buy the, your CD at the gig. So um, you have to work harder. I mean, I know a lot of musicians in the middle tier who have dropped out of the business. You know, they're just not going to do it anymore because they can't, they can't make a living. And that, that's very sad. And this, this conversation has to impact the other thing you're talking about, your, your films, your presentation of films. Well, I, you know, I'm just, I just, I just, you know, my, my whole presentation of films is basically finding films to show and renting them for a night and showing them. Um, that issue for me there is always, it's always tough to people to get, to get people out of their house. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It limits that yeah. too, because I mean, yeah. why would I go to your, to a theater and watch a movie when I can just. Uh, it's a really it. good question. It's a, it's a, <laughs> you know, it's, I've struggled with that for a couple of years now. You've struggled with it. I've struggled with it. I, I think everybody's struggling with it. And then, yep. So, what's the grand answer? What What do we need to do? Let's just uh, figure this out. In the, in the music business, or for films, or any of this stuff. What What do we? There's, you know, I, there's no, there's no answer. That's the sad fact. Is there? There's no answer. The internet basically is pushing a lot of things towards lower and lower prices, and so people are going to have to get cu- accustomed to finding a niche where they can be happy to exhibit and show their wares um, without getting a lot of money. Which makes it, it all makes it all more of a, a hobby than a, a career path. Yeah, it's going to be a hobby and something you do, and you're going to have to really work hard to, you know, the artist on the music side, the artists who are going to do well are the artists who really know how to use the uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest to really get their stuff across. I mean, you have to be talented, not only in being a musician, but being a social media expert. So and the old joke and I can is, tell you, with, with my, the people on my label, you've got some people who are really good at that and some people who aren't. And is it, I, I know there's classes and people you can hire, but is that one of those things that you either have or you can see conceptually or don't have? I... Yeah, I think it's either you have it or you don't have it. I mean, again, I, I have a couple of art. I've got one artist in particular who is just a genius at social media, you know, and, and others who just would never know what to do. Um, I think some some of it has to do with your age. So the younger you are, the more adept you probably will be at social media. Um, but there's also, uh, you know, some artists, you need that ability to actually not only do the social media but be on the phone half the day calling up gigs, uh, places to play and festivals and selling yourself. And some people are not that good in selling themselves. So the old, the old joke used to be 10 years to be an overnight success. So we're looking at 15, 20, if ever. Well, I don't know what overnight success is right now. I mean, it's, you know, the problem here is sometimes stuff will go viral. You like, you could be an overnight success like Justin Bieber just by, doing almost nothing something happens and you're big um it's it's uh it's almost like a crapshoot you you you'll do all the regular things to get your music out you don't know what will actually uh hit a nerve with the public and really go viral yeah i i follow that with the show i mean it's all at least all these new digital platforms are great cuz they allow us to talk and people around the world to hear us but on the other hand Everybody and their brother can do it. So, where's the how, what's the differentiate between my show and somebody else's show? Exactly, that's what really makes it hard. And so, it's it's a uh, it's a really tough thing. And it means, and you never know. You you could do eighty shows, and you find that whoa, there's a show that really hit the public and people liked. You just never know what's going to what's going to do it. And then you try to recreate that same magic, and guess what? You don't have it. You, you don't <laughs> have it. It just you know you just can't you can't recreate viral success. Because it's viral. So let's go back. Because I, I see, I no, I didn't write this down. So correct me if I'm wrong. But you had something to do with the Pentium marketing. Uh, yeah, I, well, I worked for Intel Corporation in the computer business, and I, I was a, a leader of a team that launched the Pentium three microprocessor in Asia back in the 1990s. And now I don't know what they're up to now. It just it seems no like every idea. time I turn around. It, you know, it's ten times faster than the last one. I'm like, 
how is that even possible? Because the last one was, ten, you know, they just games every time they come out are ten times faster. It's a continual cycle to get people to buy more and more uh, faster and faster computers. And of course, they never go fast enough. You're always still cursing at the fact that Windows is still too slow. Well, I don't. I don't think they could ever build a computer to make Windows work right. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So yeah, well, I worked in the computer business for for nine years. Why did I just get that blue screen? No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh no, but you're right about how the, it's always pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. But I don't know. Is there? There's a, does there come a point where we just hit the ceiling on that? Well, when I was at Intel, one of the problems that corporations used to come to Intel and say, "Look, you're going too fast." We can't keep up with all the changes. We have to approve any new computer used in our company, and you're going so fast that once we approve something uh, and deploy it, something new has already come out. So you've got to go a little slower um, for, for us to plan properly. And that that was a big issue back when I was at Intel. And even now, it's just got to be astronomical because it seems like I said, every time you turn around, there's somebody launching out something newer and faster and Ooh. Yep, it's <laughs> and that all oh, the competition that goes. Well, that that's still, I guess, we're still all talking about the same thing here about competition and trying to be the next and be on top of it. And the more we change the topic, the more it stays the same. Yep, that's true. So, what was the first? I I did. I must have missed somewhere about the first book. What was the first book about? The first book was called uh, Conservative Confidential, Inside the Fabulous Blue Tent. And it was basically a memoir about my political movement from being a left-wing socialist to becoming a conservative. And the Fabulous Blue Tent, which, uh, which is in the, in the title, was a party uh, that I started with two other friends for gay conservatives which we've done three times. And have you, do you feel that you're making a impact with that? Well, yeah, we, we completely changed the conservative party in Canada to being, to, be, to becoming very, very gay friendly. Well, that's a, I mean, that's a positive outcome because I, I don't follow Canadian yeah. politics, obviously, because yeah, so, I have my own circus to follow down here. <laughs> yeah. So it was very, very positive And, and, uh, so the Conservative Party is very, very supportive now of same-sex marriage. Uh, the last Conservative government brought in several thousand gay refugees from 90 different countries. So we were, uh, and we had a foreign minister who was gay, gay a conservative foreign minister who was, who was gay, who went around the world talking about gay, gay rights. So that's pretty good for a Conservative government. It's pretty good for anything, let alone government, I mean... And then you add that layer on top, and it's it's astronomical. Yep. So because they seem so to be the sl- they seem to be the slowest to to move. Yeah. Well, you know, look, you've you've got two thousand years of anti-gay teachings from the church, three thousand anti years of anti-gay teaching from uh, Judaism, and a little less from from Islam. So, if conservatives are are ten twenty years later than liberals, it's nothing in the, in the uh, scheme of time. So we've talked about all this. What what are you doing right now? I mean, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm starting my my next book, and my next book will be on a chat. It won't be that that won't be that interesting to American listeners. I'm going to be writing on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, the CBC, which is uh, the equivalent of NPR and PBS in the states. I mean. You're right. Probably not broad appeal, but I'm always interested in broadcasting. What are, what aspect of it are you holding it up and trying to? Well, the, write about? the CBC the CBC gets a billion dollars a year from the Canadian government, and then when you add in uh, their advertising revenue, they have a two billion dollar a year budget. And so my book is basically about um, that they're just sort of disappointing given their huge budget um, and what they do. They don't really do a good job of telling Canada's story. They don't do a good job of telling Canadians our history. Um, and uh, there's a lot of really good voices that never appear on the CBC. So I really want to document <clears throat> um, a view of how, of why the, the CBC is actually a, a very disappointing organization. Now, I just want to make sure I heard you right, because, you know, 
the internet's a great thing at times, and sometimes I get little pops and stuff. You, they get a million from the government, and then billion, another, a billion, a billion oh, from billion. the Canadian government. Yeah, a billion, a billion, and then another right. billion in, ad, in advertising. So that's two. So billion. they have a budget of around two billion dollars a year. And you're you're saying they. I'm saying they're disappointed given the large amount of money that they have every year. I'm I'm just baffled by getting two billion dollars and not being able to produce like historical stuff. You know, just that. Yeah, well, as a good example, if you if you look at PBS in the states, the American Experience show yeah. is terrific, yeah. right? It, it yeah. documents all the American presidents, all the major events in American history. We do not have an equivalent in Canada. There have been no documentaries about Canadian prime ministers. <laughs> Why not? I'm not just they asking. just haven't done them, you know. And so all the major events of Canadian history, um, there are no document. You know, there, you know, there are very few documentaries that are the CBC has done. I mean, they've done a few, but they've they've just really been absent in really telling us our story. I can't remember the time. It it, it probably has been a time in the last month or so. But I've been watching everything Ken Burns has done, from baseball right, yeah. to the Civil War to Vietnam. I love the baseball. I love the baseball one. Yeah, like, and not to say I catch every detail, but it's just I've been a gal- that guy. Oh boy, either he he I just love to pick his brain and see how much of that stuff he actually remembers. <laughs> Good question. <laughs> That'd be so unfair, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> it? It would be. I'm sure he. Uh, Forgets quite a bit of it because he's done so much, and but the, and then again, there's, there's all these docu. You know that, that I, I think they're partially funded by PBS. I'm not 100 percent sure if they all are or not, but I know some of them were. Well, if they're not funded, they're they're shown. I mean, he's got he's got a home to show all his documentaries, and they're shown across the country, and they're very important documents on the American story. And, and I just couldn't imagine. Uh, I guess I mean I never looked for them. I guess about Canada, but I guess now you'll send me the trouble because I won't find them if I look for them. Well, you'll find. You know, it's not that there's none, but it's just, it's just there's nothing systematic like you have in the states. Look at the. Uh, you you also have American Masters on PBS, which goes over all the major artists, musicians, um, movie makers in the U.S. I mean, PBS, there's Frontline, and PBS does an amazing job of covering science and current events and arts and history, and PBS gets far less money uh, from the government than the CBC gets from Canada, the Canadian government. Rattles my cage, which is... Well, thank you for bringing awareness to that to me, because, like I said, as a media person, so to speak, I... But I get so engulfed in what's going on here and trying to keep up here with all the crap, I mean, stuff. Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> you're bringing out the worst in me, Fred. I don't know. This might okay. end badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least I didn't say the other word. Uh, <laughs> so, looking back now that you've gone back to Kennedy for a minute, looking back yep. through the process <clears throat> of going from conspiracy to researcher to now being on the the present that more 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 of the official narrative is true than not or all of it well it, it's i hate to use the term official narrative i i would say the the evidence is very 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 clear that there was no conspiracy and lee harvey oswald killed kennedy that i think is a better description of okay of where so, we're at the the journey throughout it all. Yep. Is there one takeaway besides just doing your own homework? Well, my takeaway is that how much you know. I, I and, and I'm glad that I, I, I had things like like school and work that interfered with my JFK. Uh, I, I could have gone down the rat hole and become a real JFK nut, <laughs> um, um, and 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 would have gone down the rat hole, and you would never have seen me again. Uh, far too many people go down the road and never get out of this JFK stuff. Um, and you, you can go really, really deeper and deeper into believing that all these crazy things. Um, so I'm happy sort of, I just sort of came out of it. I would have, looking back, I wish I had played guitar 
for all the hours I put into the JFK assassination, I wish I had just played my guitar. I'd be a much better player right now. <laughs> and so my advice to people is, uh, you know, go get Vincent Bugliosi's book, buy mine, um, read them and be happy, and move on to another topic. That is, you probably would, yeah. I, I think that that happens to a lot of people. Where they, no matter if it's JFK or any of these other things that I talk about, they get so hyper focused on that, whatever that is. They lose track of the ball around that life. Oh, and, and you know, and I've gotten you know, I've gotten so many you know nasty emails and and horrible comments on Facebook and Twitter about me because my book is not a conspiracy book. I've been called names. Um, I've been people on the radio have said nasty things about me. It's just it's been an incredible experience. Um, people are so caught up and so bought into um, their beliefs, they get they get really angry when they're challenged. See, I don't understand. I don't again. See, here we are. I'm just going to say this again. I don't understand the rationale of bashing somebody just to bash somebody. Civil. I mean, disagreement about the topic's great. But go on and just bleep, you know, bleepity bleep bleep, you don't know crap. What's the yeah. what's the game? Yeah, people have called me alt-right, which I'm not. Um, they've Somebody on radio said that I was financed by the Koch brothers. I wish I was. <laughs> I would gladly take a lot of money from the Koch brothers, but they're not offering. Um, somebody, one a major JFK researcher said I owned a media empire. Well, we got to talk later then if you own a media empire, because I, I yeah. Well, if I want to be, you know, if you want to buy a record company for pretty cheap, it's available. Um, I mean, it was laughable to think that I own a, a media empire. <laughs> That's all. And it so takes. people just say these things about me, and it's just like, wow, it's me. I never even knew that. I can't. I just can't. Again, I mean, if you want to, you know, argue the facts or points, that's fine, but anything above that is just... Uh... Oh! From my chat room, Cat uh, Ward, the host of Paranormal Heart, uh, fellow Canadian, yep. says hello. So, Oh, hello. So we've got international listeners, because I've got a few from the States, but the Canadian okay. ones recognize, so we'll, I will do that, and I will not sing O Canada, because, well, we do prefer to li- keep the listeners we do have. Um... <laughs> Ugh. That'd be bad. Me singing would be bad. I'm not. I'm not entertaining a record deal with you, by the way. I mean, you can offer, okay. but um, I would probably kill the rest of the music industry if we made a record. So, um. you should check out one of my artists. One of my my big artists is Watermelon Slim. Water He's Slim. Absolutely, a, Watermelon Slim. He's absolutely an amazing blues artist. Plays lap steel guitar. Uh, he's a Vietnam War veteran. Uh, lives in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Uh, used to be a former truck driver, and uh, we just released uh, our seventh CD with Watermelon Slim. Got on the notes. You know what I'm going to be doing here in about 25 minutes. Um, with all, okay, so this is a music question. Since you just brought it yep. up, you mentioned steel yep. guitar. Um, yep. There are some sounds that you just can't get off a computer. I mean, like you can do a drum beat and piano and all this other stuff, but guitar, steel guitar, banjo. Am I right, or am I just being an idiot at this point? Well, I think you're right. I don't really know enough about uh, computer sound. Uh, I, it's one of those things where I assume it's going to get better and better and better and better. Uh, I don't know whether you can get the kind of sound from bending a string upward or downward uh, on a guitar. Um, but I, I don't know, you know, because computers are getting better and better and better at all this stuff. No, just just come come on strong and say no. The real performance is always <laughs> going to sound better. Come on. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I'll say it, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm I'm amazed because my partner's always showing me uh, advances in drawing on computers, and it's pretty amazing whenever I see a new advance on painting and drawing on the computer. It just gets better and better and better. I know, but I'm, I'm just saying that... I, I, have an, I have another friend who is a major photographer who's finally gone digital. Um, so, 
these technologies keep on getting better. Finally, gone digital. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, but there, I guess, I guess, there's something to that, though. Because I hate to say it, the art of actually taking a picture, because you know, we I, we could, I could just take one now of myself here. I'm gonna do that while we're talking here. Post it on Instagram later to prove my point. No matter, you know, I can make it look a world better with it being digital. But if you're taking it with film, you're kind of well. I mean, I guess you could scan it and make it digital and all this other stuff. But the the art of taking the photo, capturing that moment, has changed. That's probably the biggest change with technology. Well, and the biggest change I think is that everybody's using their phones. Yeah, does anybody so, does anybody carry a camera anymore? No, it's all everybody's using their phones, and that's the whole camera industry. The whole photo, photo, photographic industry is now based on the phone. I remember this wasn't that long ago. I was super excited that I got ten times zoom. I got a camera that had ten times zoom, and the, right, my yeah. phone now has ten times zoom. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I'm like. Man, that was so cool the first time I pulled that thing out and zoomed in and, you know, and then I took the picture and I popped it on the computer and it was so blurry because I moved, but, uh, <laughs> but it was cool. I had to get yeah, better yeah. at it. So between writing and music and films and what, what's, what, what do you do to get away from it all then? Well, uh, <laughs> I, you know, get away from it all. Well, travel, uh, you know, whatever, uh, you know, uh, travel a fair bit. Um, but, you know, get away from it. I'm quite happy sitting at home and writing during the day. You can't, I, I, I end these interviews with a little rapid fire. And I, was tra- I was hoping you'd say travel because I wanted to ask you this question, yeah. which, which is what, where would your dream trip be? The somewhere you haven't been already. Well, I've, I've really have spent very little time in South America and in Africa. I've been all throughout Europe. I've been all throughout Asia. So I really haven't. Uh, I'd like to go on a safari in Africa. I'd like to spend some time in uh, a variety of South American countries. If, okay, so I haven't, I've never been to Europe. So if I, if I got there, where should I go? Oh, my, there's so many good places in Europe. I mean, you guys should go to Prague in, uh, in the Czech Republic. I mean, Prague is one of those absolutely incredible cities. The architecture is absolutely amazing. It's it's a it's a, just a, a, an incredible place. Uh, but I, you know, Budapest is another great city. I mean, Paris. Walking along Paris, throughout Paris is just fantastic. London is a really happening place right now. There, there's so many good places to go in Europe. Who's your uh, obvious? Okay. I'm going to preference this, even though I don't. I know I don't have to. Who's your favorite author besides yourself? My favorite <laughs> author? Yeah. I don't know if I have a favorite author. Um, you know, most of the books I read are nonfiction books. Um, so it, there's a variety of authors. I mean, one of my favorite authors is one of my friends out on the West Coast, uh, Terry Glavin, who is a, a reporter for a columnist for the National Post, who's written several really fantastic books. Uh, but I don't know if I have a favorite author because, you know, I, I read a whole variety of different types of books. I uh, obviously know your favorite genre of music, but like, who, give me. Some, I, you're not going to give me one. I know that. So you mentioned Watermelon Slim earlier. Give me some more people that are on your radar, maybe not even on your rate on on your label. Um, in the blues world. Yeah, or any anywhere in the music world, just. Because like we were talking, it's hard to find. I mean, the catalogs. Well, um, you know, Shamika Copeland is just one of the greatest uh, vocalists, blues vocalists uh, out there. Um, she's from Chicago. She's absolutely an amazing blues vocalist. Uh, so if you haven't heard Shamika Copeland, um, she's absolutely fantastic. Um, there's, there's so many, so many great artists. Uh, I mean, I, 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 I fell in love with the the TV series Nashville. Um, I loved all the music that came out of that TV series. It's great country music um, by a variety of uh, of artists. That was a lot of fun. That series. 
I don't know if you watched it at all. No, I'm, I did not. But, but good again, series and great music. That you know, that's hard to hard to pair anymore. It seems like everything's so drama. There's not necessarily good music. It's just and music. what I loved about the series was that they the music came first. So in any scene where there was a song being played, um, they made sure the song was just perfect. You know, and I, I really appreciated that. You know, with, there could be all sorts of drama going on in the series, but then they go to music, and it would be a perfect, beautiful song. And uh, I really appreciated that. So, um, give my listeners the website one more time because I'll make oh, sure we conspiracyfreak.com. Yeah, conspiracyfreak.com. And I've got a lot of pictures there, um, and you could see some videos of me, and you could uh, a whole variety of uh, reviews and articles uh, about my book. Well, Fred, actually, I'm going to just let you go a little bit early because I've got a few things I need to clean up here. You probably don't want okay, to listen to me. Okay, well, thank you. You don't want to listen to me rant, do you? <laughs> no, thank you very much. And uh, if you ever want to uh, have another round on the JFK assassination, I'd be quite happy. Okay, sounds good, Fred. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye. And that's uh, Fred Letling. Excuse me. Um. Yeah, interesting night. I, I I struggle with JFK a lot, and that's why I bring all these people on, from Fred to I talked about it with Roger Stone, um, Gerald Posner, the late great Jim Mars. Uh, there's been others that we've talked about it throughout the course of the history of the show. I continue to struggle with it. Um, do I believe everything he said? No, I don't. I don't know. There's not a working theory in my head. Pieces of it all add up. Yeah, and speaking of which, I'll just mention this for those people out there listening. The chat room was horrible tonight, and I apologize. I don't know. They were updating. Of course, um, seems the people I connect with, they update their servers while I'm trying to do my show, or right before my show, so. Supposedly, you know, downtime for the rest of the world, except for me. So I'll apologize in advance for that. Um, but, man... JFK kind of always keeps rattling around my head. Just um, wanted to touch base with you all. I've got a few minutes left here. I didn't really take um, the opportunity the other night, a couple nights ago, with John uh, Kirku. I mispronounced his name. The owner of 400 shows. Didn't really get into it with Mark a few weeks last week. Um, want to touch on that a little bit. Uh, a little bit more in depth. I mean, obviously, 400, uh, Germantown Runner tells me all the time, is a big number. Of course it is. It's 100 for. And um, I really struggled with that. If you listen to the end of the John Kirkulu interview, you'll hear it. You'll hear the struggle that I had with it that night. And uh, based off that show and that moment... If you listen, like I said, go back and listen to the end of that interview, and you'll hear the struggle I had. But the struggle comes from, and this is why I want to talk about this for a minute, put it in perspective for you all. It's been a, a ride to host in the show. I was talking, um, Mark, uh, Mark Anthony kind of brings this up again, because Mark, I did the first... Well, from May, the end of May until the middle of August, in my bedroom closet, right? Which was literally three feet by three feet, hotter than hell in there, every week. Okay? Well, that week with Mark, I couldn't take it. I was sitting in there, I was about ready to, like, pass out before the show started. So I needed to do something different. So I have a very vivid memory of talking to Mark the first time, sitting by an open window with a folding chair, a tray table, and beside my bed in the bedroom doing the show, yelling down at my iPhone on the floor because I had Mark plugged into the mixer. Right? But I didn't have a call-in number, so I wasn't doing it through the computer. I was doing it through the mixer that was plugged, powered by a 9-volt battery. Right? And just amazing to me how... 
much the show has grown since then to being heard in 165 countries around the world, all 50 states, uh, been on a number of premier networks, um, been top 100 on Stitcher, been, yeah, okay, you get the point. I've done a lot of things. Now, having said all of that, yeah, to me, this is the same show. The website looks better. It sounds better. Thanks, Brian Anderson. BrianAndersonVoice.com. Uh, I'm better. But honestly, it's the same show. Same notebooks. Same note cards. Same pens. Just grinding through it. And good nights, bad nights, horrible nights, um, amazing nights. I don't want to say they've all, you know, there's been highs and lows and all of that. So I have, um, why am I saying all this? First, I want to thank each and every one of you who listen, who listen live, who listen via podcast, who listen wherever you're listening, however you're listening. You know where you're listening. I don't have to tell you all the places you're listening. Second, I want to thank all the guests. Every one of them. Good, bad, or indifferent. You you made an impact on me in the show. Third, I want to mention... All, I, I don't want to mention all the people who have helped significantly in the, course of this, in the course of this program, but I'll mention some that are currently impacting the show. Like Chris Olson, who does my show notes. Brian Anderson, who does my audio stuff. Um... Aaron from Verities. If you want to call in Germantown Runner, you know the number. You've only got three and a half minutes left, though. So just be aware. Um, Aaron from Verities, who really has been a big supporter in the last few months, not only with with everything. Uh, There's just so many people that I check in with, I try to check in with constantly about how they're doing, how the show's doing. I don't want to... I like protecting my guests. I want to have control. I know. Some people want controversy. I want to be in control. To Dave's point about calling in during every show. He knows that. He knows how I feel about that. But there's there's going to be opportunities, I think potentially down the road for both but we'll well it's going to be an interesting summer that's all I'll say about that um but to the present it never stops amazing me how far the show has come how far the show goes how far every time I check a, a statistic I think, you know, that means people are listening around the clock, around the world, every day. Now, I've said a lot of that. I've said a lot of thank yous. I'm going to continue saying a thank you right now. But, oh boy, here comes the big boat. Everybody's ready, right? Everybody's ready. Here's the big butt. The only thing that keeps this show absolutely moving forward is your commitment to the show. A, listening, and B, you've got to get out. I, I, I say this a lot, but you really have to be my marketing department. You have to go out and promote the show. You have to share it. You have to like it. You have to retweet it. You have to favor it. You have to do this. You ha- I know. All of this junk. I always, you know, There's hundreds of shows out there that start their show and continuously bang on you doing that stuff. I'm not that show. If you've listened to the show for any period of time, I don't. I can go weeks or months without banging on you to share the show or f- subscribe to the show or whatever. But listen, it, it does need to happen. Not for me, but all these algorithms and all that crap that drives to the show so people can find it are based off all that crap. So that's how we perpetuate and keep the show growing. And continue to keep these interesting guests 
like uh, Fred tonight and uh, John a few weeks ago and Mark and I'm not going to name any more names because there's so many great names out there that I've had on the show that everybody knows. The views and opinions expressed on the Mallard Report are those of the host and participants. For past shows, social media links, and so much more, visit Mallard.com, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. Thanks for listening. Share, like, subscribe. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.